Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, I'm Ivana Andrade, and today I'm in the studio with Rafi Alam. Rafi is a highly active Pakistani environmental lawyer and environmental activist. He founded Salim Alam and Company, a law firm in Pakistan that specializes in energy, natural resources, and urban infrastructure. Among many positions he holds, Rafi is an op-ed columnist, he teaches environmental law at Lahore University, and serves on the board of the Punjab Environment Protection Council. He's here at Yale as a World Fellow. Today, we're talking about insights from his experience as an environmentalist and lawyer in Pakistan. Thank you, Rafi, for joining me in the studio. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ivana. It's a pleasure being here. I wanted to start out by asking you a little bit about uh, comparisons you've observed between American and Western European perceptions of environmental issues and Pakistani perceptions of environmental issues. I know you've spent quite some time in London and the U.S. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yes. Um, I, I spent some time as an undergraduate in the U.S. and uh, in London. Um, and then have spent my professional career in Pakistan these last 15 years um, looking increasingly at environmental issues. And, I mean, of course there's a difference between how the East and West, broadly North and South, perceive uh, environmental issues. In Pakistan, environmental issues are, I mean, they're inextricably tied to development. You have to sort out clean water before you can expect people to rise out of poverty. It's very much linked to these sorts of things. Um, and I've noticed here in the United States, for example, uh, how industrial stakeholders and commercial stakeholders and even government regulators uh, work out a discourse on the environment that doesn't seem to be linked necessarily to development, um, but it's linked to things like in EPA standards. And that's what industry will fight about. Um, it'll fight about the cost to industry of improving its ability to, uh, you know, uh, clean up its pollution. It'll debate these sorts of issues, but it's not looked at in through the prism of development, uh, whereas where I come from, environment and development go hand in hand. So do you think that in some ways this, this perception of, of environmental issues as uh, relating to in EPA standards or the cost to industry, do you think in, in some ways that's a hindrance or a, a narrow view? Do you think American perceptions could be broadened in any way? Well, um, I think environmental regulation in the United States is very strong, regardless of what the EPA standards may be and regardless of whether uh, what citizens, industry or government feel about a particular EPA standard, they're very well regulated. There's a, there's a good, res healthy respect for the law. Um, that's not necessarily the case in a place like Pakistan, where we also have EPA standards, but where enforcement is very poor. Um, so the fight is very different. Um, you know, over here, when you have good enforcement, industry has to change its regulations and its practices. Over there, or back home, when you set an industry standard, uh, the big fight is to get the EPA to be able to regulate powerful industrial actors. And these are politically disproportionate people. So when an EPA officer walks into a big industrial warehouse and serves them a notice, most likely a few days later he's going to get a call from his boss asking him what, what the hell did he just do. So the fight is very different. It's, you know, two almost different worlds. 
Um, and I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to say there isn't anything Pakistan could learn from the United States or vice versa, but the, the, the two, these issues play out on completely different playing fields. The reason I was asking is because even though the U.S. is considered a developed nation, we still have incredible rates of poverty and want to clean environmental situations. Yeah, you're, you're right. And um, the discourse doesn't match. Um, you're not talking about development or how, how you can improve people's... I mean, this is a country that spends a huge amount of money on health care. Um, and correspondingly, not enough on making sure that people's water and their air are clean. People get sick because of their environment or the things that surround them. And healthcare costs here are so expensive. So there seems to be a, a sort of, I mean, I do do see a delinking of, of certain issues. Um, I think the United States could learn from, you know, embracing development and environmental uh, sort of enforcement and putting them together. But I don't really see that in political discourse over here. It's usually colored by other issues. You've got, you know, your Democrat Party and your Republican Party always fighting, having polar opposite views on, on a whole bunch of issues that don't, re- don't really address the environment at all. So moving a little bit into climate change, um, Pakistan, of course, is extremely vulnerable to climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about the national climate change policy developed by the Ministry of Environment in 2012? Mm -hmm. And yeah, please. Absolutely. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that Pakistan has an environment, uh, a climate change policy. Uh, Pakistan has been, in the last couple of years, the rankings that come out, German Watch is one institute that publishes rankings, and Pakistan's been in the top five most vulnerable countries to climate change. And that's because in the last five years, there have been four major floods. And these are climate events that have uh, wiped out huge amounts of land, uh, affected farmers' livelihoods, cost lives, damaged infrastructure, and really crippled the economy. So uh, the policy was several years in the making, um, and was eventually approved by the previous government in, in 2012, uh, 2009, sorry, and then it became in force in 2012. The problem with the policy, and it's a, it's a fantastic document, it's one of those cross-sectoral documents that doesn't think of climate change as its own silo of science or, or political science. Um, it looks at climate change through the lens of development. It looks at climate change in water security and food security. It examines the, you know, the, the, the gender dimensions of climate change. It's a really all-encompassing document. Uh, the problem is that it was mistimed in many ways. I'm very proud of the document and how it highlights issues, how it, it, it commits the federal government to all sorts of actions. But it was mistimed. And let me explain that. In 2010, the government of Pakistan passed the 18th Amendment to the Pakistani Constitution, which is a huge political uh, sort of milestone. Uh, You need three quarters of uh, the National Assembly's approval and then the Senate's approval. And this is a rare political unity being shown. The 18th Amendment was largely a decentralization of the federal government's rights and responsibilities to the four provinces of Pakistan. I mean, if you think about it, it's like if the U.S. federal government gave up a lot of its powers uh, to the states. Um, and this is what had been a long-standing political request from the provinces uh, through the history of Pakistan. And so a huge bundle of responsibilities were, were handed down, including things like health um, uh, and environmental regulation and ecological protection. 
there were about 54 subjects that were devolved and environment was one of them. So what happened is you had at the federal level in Pakistan a Ministry of Environment that dealt with the environmental issues of all of Pakistan. It doesn't do that anymore. It's decentralized its its responsibilities to the environment departments of the four provinces of Pakistan. What that means is there's been a hollowing out at the federal level of the people who are responsible for environmental regulation and also looking after climate change. And then at the provincial level, you have uh, agencies that are newly formed that really don't know what their new responsibilities are. So you have a bunch of people at the provincial level who've never really had to deal with policy making and implementation of environmental issues since ever. So now this is their new responsibility. And the climate change policy came and was was approved right in the middle of this decentralization. So there's a huge manner of confusion at the federal level of what the federal government is supposed to do with respect to climate change in Pakistan when all of its environmental responsibilities have been devolved to the provinces. So, for example, in uh, last year's budget, the climate change division, uh, which has been downgraded, it used to be a ministry, it's been downgraded because of an austerity drive in the government of Pakistan to save money. It's been downgraded from the status of a ministry to the status of a division, and its budget's been cut. Its budget was cut from 157 million to now it is 28 million rupees. And 28 million rupees, uh, if I can... It's about the cost of a Mercedes A-Class. And that is the budget that the government of Pakistan has set aside for the protection and for the implementation of a climate change policy for 200 million people who are ranked by German Watch as one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change. That's one of the major problems with the climate change policy. And then at the provincial level, you have provincial governments who, I mean, provincial governments have not, it's not as if they haven't done environmental regulation, but the sort of scope and responsibility of provincial governments before the 18th Amendment when it came to environmental protection was more or less nothing more than shutting down polluting factories. Now it's their responsibility to think about things such as food security and adaptation. I mean, now we're talking about how are you going to fix uh, water practices to make them more efficient? How are you going to have better flood protection when the next flood comes? What are you going to do in terms of healthcare once people's hospitals, once, once community hospitals have been destroyed or roads linking villages to hospitals have been swept away? These are new policy frontiers for the provincial governments. And I've been doing some uh, budget analysis for some policy papers I've been working on. And the evidence it doesn't seem very, I mean, encouraging because the provincial governments haven't increased their budget allocations for these responsibilities. So I mean, the evidence is they aren't doing anything. So the sad news from Pakistan is although we've got a robust, all-encompassing climate change policy, we've got an administration that's going through a major reshuffle through the 18th Amendment. And in this confusion, climate change is one of the victims. So if you were to weigh in on and offer your opinion about this shift from federal to provincial power, do you think it was the right move? or And do you think that the fallout has been... Now, this is very interesting. Uh, and this is, uh, we've been talking about how, in Pakistan, we've been talking about the repercussions of this decentralization. There are a lot of people who say that the decentralization of climate change, of the environment in Pakistan, has been a terribly bad idea. They think that it's something that should be regulated at a central level. Now, all over the world, people handle environmental regulation differently. Here in the United States, for example, education is at the state level, and you've got 50 states that manage to coordinate amongst themselves how they're going to do stuff. 
you know it's a matter of coordination in pakistan we've got four provinces and they have to deal with climate change adaptation and mitigation they've got to do some environmental regulation i don't see coordination being a very difficult issue at the same time if uh, in pakistan we turn to india and we look at how the indian government over the past few decades and years has been looking at environmental issues we see a gradual centralization of environmental issues and climate change issues so they're going upwards and we are decentralizing these are broader political aspirations that countries have and it's difficult to say who's right and who's wrong uh, at this point in pakistan's history i'd much rather fail forward than scratch my head about a, polit- a major milestone political decision that was made 4 years ago so I, my advice to government when i advise them when i'm on the council uh, is that look this is now your responsibility unless you want to go back and review the 18th amendment itself unless you want to fight that fight we've got our hands full and we've got to do budget allocations we've got to come up with strategies and plans right now so when you're looking at these provincial budgets and their capacity to deal with some really big issues what are some of the things that they're focusing on right away or what are some of their primary concerns well the like i said the historically the provincial governments have looked at environmental regulation really in in terms of enforcement they haven't done much policy formulation and they haven't thought of things like climate change and the integral parts of pakistani climate change adaptation which is food security and water security a bunch of other things they haven't done that what they are good at like i said is closing down factories that have surpassed or violated epa standards now getting an organization with this sort of historical track to change its track is something that may just be the, beyond the powers of a humble lawyer and activist you need real political attention for a policy shift like that and we're working on it we're trying to find people to be able to convince them that look the environment departments in the provinces need to have better capacity and indeed the subject of the environment and climate change shouldn't again be categorized and sort of you know made discrete the food department in the in, in the provinces the health department in the provinces the education department in the provinces all have their responsibilities when it comes to you know formulating and and implementing adaptive policies schools could provide curriculum on what to do in the event of floods and droughts you know how you can have better water these are things you sh- you should be teaching people in school in pakistan um and so the health department should know better about how vector borne disease Uh, patterns are going to change because of temperature fluctuations um the food department should know better about uh, food and agriculture departments should know better about how crop productivity is going to be affected by changes in climate in the next couple of decades these are now their responsibilities as well so it's not just the environment department it's the entire structure of government has to be relooked at or reexamined in light on in light of how they're going to deal with climate change the unfortunate thing is that right now given where pakistan's politics is this is not high on the agenda it's not as if the provincial governments have given lots of money to their provincial environment departments to do their job no provincial governments right now are responsible and are deeply concerned with terrorism are deeply concerned with sectarian violence they're deeply concerned with reforming a falling institutional system that was given to us by the british 100 years ago improving the police there are a bunch of other things that these guys are doing um and as activists what we're trying to do is we're trying to speak to people speak to politicians and say look these problems aren't divorced from the ones we're talking about 
half, I was told, and this may be anecdotal, that, you know, half the murders that take place in Pakistan, because Pakistan's backbone economy is water and agriculture, come from water disputes. And we're going into a water insecure future. What do you think is going to happen 15 years from now? You have to take crime and security and terrorism and look it in the eyes through the lens of water security. And there's a strong argument in Pakistan that extremism, not terrorism, extremism is bred by uh, a lack of participation in resources and economic activity. So you have people in parts of Pakistan who have been forgotten by the system. There's no writ of state. There are no trains that run by that can take them to a city where they can go get a job. And they can see now on television Pakistanis in cities becoming prosperous. And it's that, you know, that exclusion from resources that breeds a bitterness in them. Um, and it, it tends to extremism. And, well, the fact that their forests are being uh, deforested because of uh, well, logging and also because of climate change, the fact that uh, they are susceptible to floods, and the fact that there are now flash floods that come through their neighborhoods and they have nothing to, 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 to help them with, um, is a development issue that politicians take seriously. And so we're trying to speak to them. We're trying to break down our own arguments and reformulate them so that it makes a little bit more sense to the people we're talking to. Picking up this question again about water security and nationalist perspectives, how how do um, nationalist views make water management, water issues, much more difficult? Pakistan is maybe unique. Pakistan and India are maybe unique in this, because when when India was was made independent by the British in 1947, and Pakistan was partitioned off. The line drawn between India and Pakistan bisected the largest contiguous gravity flow irrigation system on the earth, the Indus Basin System, which is a collection of six rivers that feed into the mighty Indus. Uh, India gets its name. Hindustan comes from the Indus. It's the land of the Indus. It's ironic that the Indus is nowhere inside India, modern India today, but that's another story. But it's, it divided the, the, the six rivers. It split them in half. And so at the very beginning, shortly after partition, there was a dispute between India and Pakistan about how waters through this irrigation system and this, this basin system would be shared. Because never in the history of that part of the world had such a political line been drawn through the water system. We had an upper and lower riparian relationship that never really existed before, which of course was exacerbated by Pakistan and India's other political sort of animosities such as Kashmir and so on and so forth. So water in Pakistan began very much, or the development of water infrastructure in Pakistan began in the late 1940s, early 1950s, as a measure of Pakistan's own ability to become independent of India and to stand on its own feet. So the development of water infrastructure and, and almost nationalism go hand in hand in Pakistan. Then, uh, once Pakistan and India finally figure out what to do with the division of their waters in 1960, signing the Indus Water Treaty, um, the, the crystallization of the rights of these two countries on the water system of the basin allowed financial institutions like the World Bank to start lending to these countries so that they could develop on a very large scale hydropower. So Pakistan got two dams, the Tarbela and the Mangla, through money from the World Bank as a result of the Indus Treaty. 
and Mangla and Terbela put thousands of megawatts of electricity on the grid. And it also provided water storage that Pakistan had never had before. So with this water storage and with the irrigation system that we had, we could now have cash crops in addition to food crops. And those cash crops could now be processed in industry that consumed the electricity from the dams. And so from the time of partition, when Pakistan was primarily an agricultural and rural society and economy, we have moved in the last 70 years. Right now, the Pakistani economy is about 50% service sector, 20% industry, and uh, 20% agriculture. So and our people have become moved from villages into cities. We're primarily an urban uh, population now. So that's a huge transformation of society that's taken place through the harnessing, essentially, of water resources. So you can't talk about water... Uh, in Pakistan without running into a nationalist ideology. Uh, this is really difficult for people like environment activists like myself who are a bit skeptical about the, the need for, a bit skeptical, I mean, I could talk both ways about it, uh, large dams. If you talk about, you know, there's, there's, there's a huge political, uh, you could say, controversy in Pakistan over the construction of a third major hydropower station called the Kalabagh. Um, the dispute basically originates in how the profits from the electricity of the dam will be uh, split between the four provinces. But nevertheless, it's a crucial issue. But whenever you oppose the dam, you are opposing development in Pakistan. If you stand up and say, well, do you know that dam is going to submerge so many villages and it's going to offset so many? No, no, no. You're against the development. You're against development, against Pakistan. You're an enemy of the state. So it, it, it is difficult to talk about water in Pakistan um, without being accused of this. So you have to tread carefully. It's not so different from some of the discourses we hear about uh, natural resource development here in the States and our own sense of patriotism, like Keystone Pipeline, for example. Um, Hydraulic fracturing in North Dakota, yeah. in Colorado, yeah. and our you know this idea of energy independence—it's all very wrapped up in how we see ourselves. That's right. Too, yeah. Independence from Middle Eastern oil and these sorts of sentiments fuel or turn you around from what's going on in Dakota. I mean, I understand that the air is smoggy. It's very least. smoggy. Yeah, to say the least. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work with the public trust doctrine. And this is an idea that's been around for a long time, uh, but how you're using it in your your practice, your work in waste management and just environmental conservation mm -hmm. in general. Well, the public trust document uh, or the public trust doctrine in Pakistani law showed up rather unexpectedly in the late 1990s. There was a suit filed by a bunch of people against Nestle uh, for the construction of a a water factory. Nestle was going to put up a, a, a water factory, water bottling plant. And the people of the area objected on the grounds that they were, the Nestle people were taking water from the aquifer, which was affecting their the availability of water that they had. To which the Sindh High Court uh, concluded that gr the aquifers, groundwater, was a public trust. And then appropriated from another jurisdiction this concept of public trust. It's not natural in Pakistani jurisprudence. It was borrowed from another jurisdiction. It was put into this case that uh, things that belong to the public the, or elements of the public trust, be they seafronts or forests or rivers uh, or things like groundwater, must be, there is a responsibility. It's a trust. A trust imposes a responsibility, uh, a responsibility on the government to use and exploit these uh, public resources in a manner that benefits the public and not the elites or a few people, which is the case of, of uh, in that particular case against Nestle. Um, 
I should add that Nestle has done some very uh, aggressive CSR and has reformed some of its practices in Pakistan before I get called out on that. But that was the first time the public trust doctrine was used. And uh, environmentalists or environmental lawyers around Pakistan rejoiced because now we had something new. Uh, that we could use in our arsenals. So if a, water, if, if, a, if a river is being mismanaged, nobody owns a river, right? It, nobody does. No, there's no law that says river or riverbeds are owned by so-and-so. So because nobody owns a river, it's a natural, it's a, it's a public trust. And now you can argue with the government that they have an obligation to regulate that river in a manner, and that includes, of course, making sure it's clean uh, and distributing it, distributing its waters to farmers in an equitable way. You say that this is a public resource which must be used in a way that benefits the public. It gives you that foothold to argue. It was used last and confirmed in Pakistani law by the Supreme Court of Pakistan in 2012 in something called the Lahore Canal case that I was involved in. And the Lahore Canal case was a bunch of urban activists protesting a plan by the government of Punjab to widen a particular road in Lahore. That seems innocuous enough, but I assure you it's a very beautiful road. It's the canal road that bisects the city, and it's tree-lined. It's a, it's a beautiful avenue, and it's, it's about a dozen miles long. It's very, very beautiful. And it, it's one of those things that Lahoris will always, across social class, will always relate to. It's one of the things that we hold in our memory map. And the widening of the roads on either side of the canal would have meant the cutting of about eight to 10,000 trees and a permanent change in the nature of that uh, area. So the case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held that the, 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 the green belts, as they're called in Pakistan, the sort of green spaces on either side of the canal and the road, were public trust, and they must be uh, used in a way that benefits the public. And since the automobile-owning population of Pakistan is in a single-digit minority, it constitutes, on the face of it, a, public, a, a, a private elite, a small elite, uh, for whose benefit this resource should not be used. Um, of course, the Supreme Court went into some depth and traced the history of the public trust doctrine from Roman law, uh, from American law, from English common law, and now has firmly grafted it onto the Pakistani judicial system. It's helpful to activists. It's not really helpful when it comes to uh, the waste management company. The waste management company's primary job is to pick up the trash of 10 million people every day, and that comes to slightly over 5,000 tons. Um, and they're pretty busy doing that. To wrap up, I was hoping you would you could talk about the bicycling group that mm. you you do over the weekends, uh, Critical, Critical Mass Lahore. Mass. Um, um, what do these, my these rides usually look or feel like on the weekends? Well, um, when I when I was you know when I started getting interested in cities generally, and then subsequently in, in my legal practice started s focusing on on urban issues, um, my wife and I were in Delhi for a trip, and came across a poster of a critical mass Delhi event. And I had no idea what this was. It seemed to be cycling. Seemed to be something interesting. I didn't get a chance to go to the Delhi event then, but went back to Pakistan, looked it up on the internet, and it seemed to be a straightforward cycle ride, which spoke to a couple of the concerns I had about what was going on in the city. Namely, we were, we were doing this campaign about uh, trees and that street, the Lahore Bachao campaign, which was all about sustainable urban management and also sustainable transport. And bicycling sort of answers both those things. 
you don't need cars. You don't need to widen roads for cars when you all cycle. Cycling is, you know, healthy, it's sustainable, and it starts making you think about how you plan your city. Do you need to have a city that's only for cars? Because these things are 20 miles wide. And in a poor city like Lahore, uh, cities that are 20, mile wi 20 miles wide are very difficult for poor people to navigate to go to work. You know, if you don't have a good public transport system, people's labor markets are restricted to where they can walk to or where public transport takes them. But if you design cities for cycles, you design them smaller, you give people access to labor, you can do high density, which is efficient. High density construction is efficient in a whole bunch of ways. You save electricity, you save on other utilities like water and gas and all sorts of things. Plus, it's fun and it's healthy. And then all of a sudden, you know, when my wife was cycling, it was this this thing about, you know, well, why not women in public spaces in Pakistan? There's a growing, there's a perception in Pakistani society that women shouldn't go outdoors. Um, I, don't, I don't know where that came from because uh, my grandmother grew up in Lahore in the 1940s and she went to college in Lahore and she used to cycle to college. But now you'd be hard-pressed to find a woman on a bike or on a motorcycle at all. You'd be hard-pressed to find them outdoors because of this perception that women aren't supposed to be outdoors. But is that because Islam says so? Is it because our cities have no public transport or safe and well-lit sidewalks so that a woman can go unmolested? Because, And this is not just in Pakistan. Embark, which is a global transport NGO, reports that women constitute over 50% of global commuters. And the incidence of assault and sexual harassment of women commuters around the world is endemic. And nobody is doing anything about it. When was the last time you heard that a bus company was hauled in and made, you know, made to pay for the fact that someone was assaulted on a bus? You never hear of it. Um, and so all of a sudden, yes, damn it, women need to be on the streets in Pakistan. And cycling is great fun. So we started, well, we started, on our, we start, we started using Facebook, social media. Um, and, and, and it's been, it's going to be eight years uh, this last week in December. It's going to be eight years. Uh, we have a healthy group of people from all over Lahore. It's been one of the most gratifying things I've done. I've met so many people, so many people cycling around. And it's been students and grandmothers and families and car mechanics and um, the guy who, hey, there's a little boy, um, Junaid, who used to beg on a street light four blocks from where I live. And because I was on a cycle, you wouldn't do this if you're in a car. Because I was on a cycle, I got to know him, and he comes cycling with us as well. Um, you know, the group subsidizes his family uh, so that he can go to school. They pay tuition so that he doesn't have to beg on the streets. But you wouldn't get that perception if you're in a car. Because when you're in a car, something weird happens. That mirror goes up or that window goes up, and you are removed from people who are four feet away from you. You know, if a starving child came into this room right now, it would be distressing. But you see it in India or in Pakistan or in all sorts of the places in the world when you're in a car. And it doesn't bother you. So this group has been fantastic. And it's developed a life of its own. I'm glad to say I managed it for many years. And now there's a whole bunch of people who actively manage it now. Um, it's branched off. There's now a cycling group in Karachi. There's a cycling group in Islamabad. Um, they're bigger than the ones in Lahore, which is something to be ashamed of. But we're working on it. I would like, actually, when I go back this year, and I will, as I do this every year for the last five years, I'm going to go to some of the members of parliament who look after the affairs of Lahore in Pakistan, and I'm going to ask them to think about holding a car-free day. Because that is the first step cities take, I've found, the first significant step they take towards sustainable transport. You've got to acknowledge that. That is so awesome. I, I know using cars, cars are a particularly isolating of social experience the infernal combustion engine <laughs> what does your daughter think about 
about this this critical mass? Has she been Absolutely. along in any bike rides? She she uh, was one of the first critical masses. <laughs> um, she cycles with me here in. Well, she I put her on the back of my bike. We go down Prospect Hill. We catch the bus to school. We cycle to school in Pakistan um, occasionally when it's not too hot. Let's not be unreasonable after all. It gets very hot there. But she cycles to school. And it's odd. She's the only student in her school who gets dropped off on a cycle. All the other kids get dropped off in a car. Even here, we've got her enrolled in a school in Hamden. She's the only kid who goes to school on the back of a cycle sometimes. Do the other kids say anything? They don't care. They don't kids care. don't care. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't start bothering them now. It starts bothering them a bit later. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Rafi. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for, for spending time with me. Real pleasure. Yeah.